Future Hacker Life Path Future. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Future Hacker. I'm your host, Maria Taigi, and today we are talking to James Bellerjo. James was general counsel of an S&P 500 company for two decades and later head of its global sustainability program. He served as president of the Association of Corporate Counsel Europe and writes the career path column for the ACC Docket, the magazine for in-house lawyers. He teaches at the University of Zurich and is an executive coach for newly promoted general counsels. After working more than 80,000 hours in less than 30 years, James feels he earned a break, right, James? So he's currently focused on applying stoic principles to live a good life and achieve satisfaction. You can check some of his thoughts on his blog, klugne.com. It's K-L-U-G-N-E.com, in which he's currently publishing a modern version of Seneca's moral letter to Lucilus. I'm pretty sure I said it wrong, so feel free to correct me, James. How are you doing? Maria, I am fine, thank you. And thanks for having me on. I'm looking forward to talking with you. Lucilius, is that right? Yeah, you know, I think as long as people understand it, then you can pronounce it any way you like. I usually say <laughs> uh, Lucilius, but yeah. Lucilius? Lucilius. Lucilius. Well, anyways, are you having a good day today? I'm having a great day, and I'm looking forward to what is probably going to be the best podcast in the history of podcasts. Wow, that, that's, that's such a responsibility. Thank you so much for that. And, you know, I was actually going to begin the podcast differently today, but I didn't want to be confusing our listeners, and I was going to introduce us not as future hacker, but as history hacker. I did love this term that you used for yourself. You call yourself a history hacker. You know... Who knows, maybe you are even launching a History Hacker episode for that. You say you're focused on what we can learn about human nature and what it means to live a good life. So I'd like to begin with a couple of questions on that. Understanding our past is critical to preparing for the future, right? For sure, we'll come back to that point during our conversation today. But when talking about human nature and our very basic needs... Do you believe there has been any change at all, or are we just the very same navigating differences, maybe using better boats? What's your thought on that? So I guess I would answer that by asking a few questions of my own. So for example, why is the paleo diet so popular? It's based on the assumption that people have not changed physically all that much from our hunter-gatherer days in tens or even hundreds of thousands of years. Or have you ever wondered what it is that makes the writings of people like Shakespeare or Confucius so enduringly popular long after they're dead? I think human nature is changing at a much slower pace than technology. So much so that you can say, really, we have not changed human nature at all in the last few thousand years. We adore Shakespeare and can relate well to Confucius because they're writing about fundamental aspects of human nature that are the same today as when they were writing. So things like love and loss, fear and ambition, envy and greed, cunning and cowardice. I would say, Maria, in matters of the heart and our basic psychology, we have vastly more in common with people who lived in ancient times, particularly when compared to how quickly our technology has changed. So 
you know, when you refer to the history hacker, of course, I'm interested in what the future holds, but I still think we can learn a lot about what to expect from looking to the past for lessons. People gave this deep and careful thought already millennia ago. From Buddha to the Roman Stoics, a lot of foundational work has been done on what it means to live a good life. By your answer, I think we have so many things to explore already, right? So just, and for the sake of our conversation, let's establish that our nature is not changing, right? But the tools around us are. And as you mentioned, like we have the pace of, of technology innovation, this crazy speed, but we're still keeping the same very nature. And it's a speed that it's hard for us to even sometimes comprehend, stop, reflect about it, discuss. So in our view, do you think that this is just a natural course of humanity? We will just learn on the go. We'll hopefully reflect about the consequences of our actions. And, you know, hopefully those consequences will give us time to fix the course when needed. Or do you believe, and considering this gap of knowledge or, or reflection or whatever that is going on on the days today, we should have more safeguards in place but consequently slowing things down, at least for the sake of a safer future. Where do we stand on that? Okay, so that's a subtle question, Maria, on many levels. And I have some thoughts and let me try to answer it like this. Switzerland, as you know, was my home for many years and my family and I became Swiss citizens 10 years ago. I think the Swiss have an impressive track record of respecting tradition. If you think about it, you need a deep appreciation for your culture and history to continue customs like playing the outhorn, yodeling, or dressing up in traditional dress. At the same time, Switzerland has ranked first in the Global Innovation Index for something like the last 10 years in a row. Clearly, we're also open to new ideas and to fostering change. What I've observed is that creates a natural tension between people who want to preserve everything exactly as we have it, without any change, and then others who want to disrupt everything, it looks like for no reason other than we can. So on the one hand, you have what I'll call the status quo group who propose initiatives to, for example, limit the amount of development in the mountain regions to preserve the character, prevent building of second homes and apartments. That initiative, by the way, did pass the popular vote. And like in other countries, we also have fights about how to handle immigration, how many foreigners to let in with what sorts of backgrounds, On the other side, we see what I'll call the move fast and break things group. They say stuff like we have to allow unfettered innovation for the sake of innovation, stem cell research, gene modification, strong AI, big data mining. That's all not only okay, but vital to stay competitive and keep the economy going. You know, if I think about it, I can sympathize with both groups, but ultimately my suspicion is they're both wrong. We cannot and should not attempt to stop progress or change. Change can be disruptive, but it also holds great potential to improve the quality of lives of people, not just in our own wonderful country, but all over the world. So I think we owe it to humankind to do the best we can to continue improving the human condition. At the same time, change for the sake of change is unwise. And change without considering likely but unwanted adverse consequences is foolish and risky. Unfortunately, people who are the drivers of disruptive change are usually brilliant, forward-looking optimists. It's just not in their nature to dwell on what could go wrong. 
So finally, to answer your question, yes, I do think we need to put in place safeguards to deal with particularly unintended consequences of disruptive change. So just a thought here. When you mentioned that we should be giving humans some space to, to innovate, I, I did hear that you think we should have some safeguards in place, but you also mentioned that for the sake of human race, you know, for our best, we should be innovating as well. So we're kind of considering that humans are mostly good and collective thinking instead of selfish and thinking about their own goods. Like if it were like that, maybe we wouldn't have so much inequality around us. Well, where do you stand when we're thinking about your study of human nature? Like, are we really collective thinkers and do we aim for, for the good of everyone? Or are we more on the self-survivor, selfish side and, you know, searching for innovation for our own prestige, maybe? Of course, it's difficult to generalize about this. Maybe I can tell you some of the things I have observed watching both individuals and larger groups of people behave because there's a difference. So, for example, before when I said, I don't think human nature has fundamentally changed, that is not at all to imply that individuals can't change their behavior. I actually think individuals are capable of profound change. And actually, we can do it more easily than we think. For example, following continuous improvement principles, using the power of habit, If you take small efforts regularly over time, they can add up to big impacts. But although I believe individuals can change, I think large groups of people are both predictably and depressingly stubborn. Uh, and I see it in a couple of ways. Some people, sometimes most people, will not follow the rules all the time. They make exceptions for themselves. They refuse to follow rules they don't agree with. And as we see all too often, they hold personal beliefs that we find offensive. Take the case of bias. You know, people talk a lot about it and what it means and the question of whether people are perfectible. Bias just means to show preference or prejudice for or against someone or something. And I think it comes virtually automatically as a result of just simply distinguishing one thing from another. So it's a basic human survival trait. Here's a new thing. Is it safe? Is it harmful? Is it good for me or bad? Do I want more of it or less? I think it would be a pretty fundamental change to expect people to no longer notice differences because as soon as we do, that bias engine starts. So although, you know, I, I know this sounds a little bit contradictory. On the one hand, I think people on an individual level are wonderful and can do pretty much anything they set their mind to. People in large groups are really not so great and they get up to bad behavior all the time. I think we don't need everyone to be an angel for the path of humanity to go upwards, because a small number of people can make a big difference. What we need to probably do is walk that fine line between giving people who are doing great things the room and encouragement to innovate, because they'll make a difference for everyone, while stopping sometimes large groups of people from causing too much harm along the way. And the innovators themselves as well, by the way, they don't always only do good. We can get back to that later. No, that's, that's for sure. <laughs> I don't know if that answered your question, but I, I sort of would draw a difference between the individual and the group because they behave differently. 
It does, it does. And, and, you know, hopefully we have a balance of the people that are actually trying to aim for, you know, a better way of the humanity against the more, you know, individual and selfish minds. But so going back to the safeguarding part, so which would you consider the best ways to do it? Would it be through education, through legislation? What's your thought on that? I'm probably a little bit biased by my background, which is in law, amongst other things. I spent a lot of time dealing with regulations, interpreting them, seeing that they were implemented correctly across a big company. And what I would say is, historically, societies have absolutely adapted to new technology with laws, regulations, and lawsuits. But historically, after the fact, most of modern tort law, for example, was developed after the broad rollout of railways and the inevitable accidents that happened with passengers. So over the course of a couple of decades in that case, regulators, lawyers, courts, they all established principles about who was to be responsible for different circumstances. That type of evolution happened with several other society-wide technology developments, and actually they're ongoing today. The recent explosion in data protection and data privacy laws around the world is a direct consequence of companies using the huge amounts of data that they're generating or that we're generating online in sort of novel and unexpected ways. I think it's rare for legislators to be able to anticipate all of the issues that will come up in advance. So regulation has historically needed to be reactive. What makes this uh, historical model, if I can call it challenging, is how much faster technology is changing than the pace of regulation. And secondly, how many people are affected in the meantime, waiting a few years to see the initial consequences, passing some laws, and then letting people fight it out in court, that works when only a small number of people are harmed by new technology. But when virtually everyone is affected and changes are made daily and hourly rather than monthly or annually, I think we probably need new systems to manage the new developments. I did think about whether there are ways to do this in a sensible fashion. And I don't believe I have an answer or the answer, but I have a suggestion or a thought. It's fallen somewhat out of favor, but the phrase derived from the Hippocratic Oath, first do no harm, is probably worth considering. I would amend it to say something like, first ensure that both anticipated harms and probable but unintended effects do not outweigh the planned benefits. So make sure you think about both the things that could go wrong and the things that would go right, and make sure that the one doesn't outweigh the other. And to that, I would add, revisit in the real world what you're seeing by way of benefits and harms and evaluate how they play out in practice, because almost never does stuff go exactly as we foresee. So the examples I would give you that people would probably understand, do you think Facebook has lived up to its mission of making the world more open and connected? Or have they made us bitter and more polarized, at least in some cases? Did Google live up to its mission of making the world's information universally accessible and useful? And if so, how do we explain the suspension of internet access and blocking of social media platforms in more than 20 countries last year, or the arrest of people for online speech in 56 countries? According to uh, Freedom House on a survey they do every year, the most recent called Freedom on the Net 2021, even in the US, internet freedom declined for the fifth year in a row. So having a good idea and having it start out great aren't enough. You really have to think about whether the unintended consequences outweigh the planned benefits. So some adaptation of the Hippocratic Oath for technology might be useful for designers to consider. 
let's talk about the unintended consequences. So as I can see, you're a strong believer of having those backup systems, right? Maybe this would be the, the old change and risk management theories and approach in which you place, you establish different courses of actions for every possible mistake that could happen. Given that we are humans, we make errors. But the key here, it's being able to identify the unexpected, the unthinkable. So, you know, I just would like to reflect a little more about it. Your thought is that more importantly than having the backup system is being able to maybe keep measuring the effects and then revisit and then change whatever needs to be changed. Then, you know, when just doing our very first legislation or whichever role or rule we are creating, trying to predict those those unintended consequences. Because, you know, seeing the unforeseen, it's, it's, it's just an exercise that at the very least we need a diverse team be behind that to have a more open mind and be more creative regarding whatever be could happen. Who could predict COVID, for example, right? So which would be the best approach in your, in your mind? Yeah, there's some good thoughts in your question, Maria. Having diverse teams of people contribute to the discussion about what could go wrong is extremely helpful. It's rare for one person or even a group of people to think of everything. And certainly the ones who are responsible for creating a system and are optimistic about what it will do are not the only ones and certainly, in my view, not the best ones to consider the ways that it could go wrong. But actually, I am more optimistic about our ability to do this. We don't need to foresee every specific crisis in order to be able to plan to be more resilient when problems do come up. So COVID, to use your point, might have been hard to predict in its details, but actually the idea of a global pandemic itself wasn't at all surprising. We had in recent memory, several scary but more modest outbreaks in other countries, and plenty of smart people were urging countries to take the time to prepare. What I think this illustrates actually is a much harder problem, which is getting people to focus on problems before they happen. I have lots of experience with trying to do this for my general counsel days. So whether it was running a global compliance program, managing our crisis management plans, or working on cybersecurity, I can tell you it's a constant battle for attention. And by the way, if you are the one pointing out potential risks when everything's going well, people call you a fear monger. And if you push for a share of scarce resources, you have to deal with the problem that many of the risks you want to address are unlikely. Unlikely, that is, until they happen. So, you know, no airline spent any money at all on reinforcing cockpit doors until 9-11, and after that, everyone did. Practically, I think there are a few things you can do that are also realistic. We learned that a small amount of basic planning can make a huge difference in the case of a crisis. So... The questions I would advise asking are things like, who is going to be on your crisis team? What outside resources will you be able to call upon? And what are your immediate priorities in responding to the problem? Answering just those three basic questions, you can do it in a couple of pages. And having that starting point means you can respond very quickly if and when something goes wrong. Each crisis anyway, in my experience, is going to be a little bit different. So you want the flexibility to adapt quickly. But having what you can think of as a first day plan is a minimal investment that provides great benefit. 
Yeah, that's for sure. James, I still have so many questions for you. I see that we're already 20 minutes away, so uh, we have to end this episode. But stay tuned, everybody. We're sure to keep going with James. Stay tuned for the second episode with our History Hacker. Future Hacker. Life. Path. Future. Future.